You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. I considered a lot of different ways to try to start this story. Finally, I decided to just read straight from what many people consider to be the definitive write-up of the subject matter for this episode. What follows is a brief excerpt from Close Encounter at Kelly by Isabel Davis. Late in August 1955, newspapers and radios all over the country carried a UFO story, which is still one of the most bizarre incidents on record, the alleged landing of the Little Green Men of Hopkinsville. The description was far from accurate. They were not green. They were certainly not men, and they were seen not at Hopkinsville, but some seven miles north at Kelly, Kentucky. The stories were approximately as follows. Shortly after sunset on the evening of Sunday, August 21st, a saucer landed in a field behind a farmhouse occupied by a family named Sutton. And soon thereafter, a group of little men, in some newspapers an army of little men, approached the farmhouse. The creatures were about three feet tall, with oversized heads, huge luminous yellow eyes, big ears, long arms, and big hands ending in talons. They glowed all over with a silvery luminescence, and they seemed to float rather than walk. For three or four hours, they besieged the farmhouse. Shotguns and rifles fired at them had no effect. About 11 o'clock, the terrified family fled the farmhouse in two automobiles, driving as fast as they could travel to the police station in Hopkinsville for help. City police, county police, state police, military police from nearby Fort Campbell, the Hopkinsville newspaper photographer, and other investigators drove to the farm and searched the house, the yard, and the fields, but found no concrete evidence to support the family's story. When the investigators left, between 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning, they were understandably skeptical. Half an hour or so after they had gone, the little men returned. Again, they approached the house. Again, they were impervious to bullets. Shortly before sunrise, they disappeared for good. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. My co-host, Karen Stoles, is out this week, but she'll be back soon. The Kelly Hopkinsville case has many names. 
variants containing Kelly, Hopkinsville, Kentucky, Goblins, Spacemen, Tubmen, and Little Green Men can be found all over the UFO, monster, and paranormal literature. I personally like referring to this as the Kentucky Goblins or the Kelly Goblins case, or referring to the whole thing as the KH case. I had been intending to cover this story, but had put it off because I wanted to get time to dive into it and get back to as many primary sources as I could. Like a lot of monster stories, over time the tale of the Kelly Goblins has changed and it's been dramatized, rewritten, and distilled by retellings into something that may be a little or even a lot removed from what went down that night in August of 1955. I should talk about my sources for this episode. Much of the information available about this case comes from an impressive document compiled by the Civilian Saucer Intelligence Group. They were a band of investigators founded in New York who tried to research the field of UFOs from the time the phenomena began until about 1959. Two of their lead investigators were Isabel Davis and Ted Blecker. That's spelled B-L-O-E-C-H-E-R, and there may be other pronunciations, but the only folks I was able to find with that name here in Georgia say it like Blecker, so I'm going to go with that. Ted and Isabel's report is available online as a PDF. That's in our show notes at monstertalk.org as well. In addition to that, I also looked at contemporary news reports, some provided to me by listener Chris Henderson. Thank you, Chris. I'll put a lot of links to these references in the show notes. This is the first episode we've covered where I'm genuinely nervous about getting all the details right, and that's because there's so many details and so many weird little variants out there that it's really tricky to be accurate. But I'm going to do my best, and if it turns out I make any mistakes here, I'll try to correct them in the follow-up episodes because this story has some sprawl to it. But keep in mind, there are conflicting bits of information in all these sources. So, let's begin by talking about the setting. I had a picture in my mind of where this event took place. I'd always heard it described as taking place in rural Kentucky on a tiny farm. But it wasn't as far away from town as I'd imagined. The farm lay about eight miles north of Hopkinsville and closer to Kelly, Kentucky. Kelly is a small town. It was a small town then, and it still is a small town now. It's unincorporated, and I could find no census data for it, though at the time it was reported to have about 150 residents. Hopkinsville was much larger. In 1955, it had a population close to 20,000 according to census data, or about 26,000 according to the incident report from the civilian saucer intelligence investigator who wrote this case up, and that was about 10 months after the events. Now, if you're from a big city, that may not sound like a big place, but I'm from Cartersville, Georgia. Salute! And when I was a kid, we had about 40,000 people in our county and about 10,000 people lived in town. So Hopkinsville was at least twice as populated as my hometown was. And it didn't feel small, but it was. And so we're about seven to eight miles north of a pretty good sized southern town here in 1955, one with a large military base as well. This farm where all this took place lay close to Highway 41 across a train track and off the old gravel road which 41 had replaced called the Old Madisonville Road. Again, I find an eerie similarity as I grew up across the service road from Highway 41 myself, only my, my, my house was in Georgia. But unlike the family in this poor farmhouse, I grew up with indoor plumbing and lots of electric lights, a radio, and a TV. Not so for the folks here in our story. This little Kentucky farmhouse was unpainted wood, shaded by maple trees, surrounded by bare dirt under the trees and weeds where the sun would let them grow. The farm had one bedroom with two beds, a living room with two beds, a little kitchen with a little refrigerator but no radio or phone. Inside were a few electric light bulbs described as being low-powered and also a light on the front and back entrances to the house. These were so meager I'm not sure they could be described as porches. The farm itself grew tobacco and vegetables to feed the family and there were some livestock 
and there was a lot of family packed into the small rooms of that farmhouse. I'll let Miss Davis's words introduce us to the folks who were there that night. It remains to sort out the cast of characters. On the evening of Sunday, August 21st, 1955, the farmhouse was occupied by eight adults and three children as follows. Mrs. Glennie Langford, age 50, the widow of Oscar Langford, her second husband. Elmer, Lucky Sutton, 25, Mrs. Langford's son by her first husband, deceased, Tillman Sutton. Vera Sutton, 29, his wife. J.C. or John Charlie Sutton, 21, Mrs. Lankford's son by her first husband. Aileen Sutton, 27, his wife. Three children, Lonnie Lankford, age 12, Charlton Lankford, age 10, and Mary Lankford, age 7. Billy Ray Taylor, age 21, a friend of Lucky's. June Taylor, 18, his wife. O.P. Baker, who was 30 or 35 and was the brother of Aileen Sutton. O.P. Baker lived in Hopkinsville, but often stayed overnight at the farmhouse where the person with whom he rode to work could pick him up more conveniently than in town. So the permanent residents of the farm were Mrs. Lankford, the J.C. Suttons, and the three children, but the Taylors and the Elmer Suttons had been staying there for some months. These two couples had been traveling with a carnival. And we need to introduce the guns. There were four firearms in the house, three of which were said to have been used. There was a 20-gauge single-barreled shotgun wielded by J.C. Sutton. There was a 12-gauge shotgun used by Lucky Sutton. There was a 22 rifle used by Billy Ray Taylor, according to Davis. And there was a 22 pistol, which was unused, according to Davis, but was used by Taylor, according to the local newspaper. I'm inclined to think this was a mistake on the paper's part. These little differences come up, but let's get on to the monsters. Well... Actually, in this case, we need to start with a flying saucer. In 1955, there were a lot of strange creatures landing on the Earth, if you believe the reports. The Davis-Blecker report actually starts out with a summary of the state of UFO claims since the first flying saucer reports in 1947. By 1950, sightings of saucers and crafts with occupants were popping up around the U.S. and the world, and more than a dozen example cases are listed, including the famous Flatwoods Monster, which has several aspects in common with the Kelly Goblins. In other words, while this was the first flying saucer with occupants reported on this farm in Kentucky, it was not the first such report to blow up in the media. Around sunset that day, Billy Ray Taylor was going out to get some well water and came back to the house saying he'd seen a spaceship land in the gully behind the house. Billy Ray was not trustworthy according to the Davis report and she includes several examples of him giving outlandish testimony only to have to walk it back. Apparently, the rest of the Sutton and Langfords didn't even bother to go look when he said he'd seen a flying ship with rainbow exhaust landing out back. The sun set around 7.30 p.m. on this hot August night. A little after dark, the dog began to bark and hid under the house. Lucky Sutton and Billy Ray Taylor went out to look and see what was causing the ruckus. There, they saw a strange thing approaching the house. Again, we'll refer to Davis's report where she describes what Sutton and Taylor saw. Approaching from the fields was a strange glow. As it came nearer, they could make out what seemed to be a small man, though a man not much like any they had ever seen before. He was about three and a half feet tall, with an oversized head that was almost perfectly round, and arms that extended almost to the ground. The huge hands had talons at the ends of the fingers. The eyes were much bigger than human eyes and glowed with a yellowish light. They were directed neither to the front nor to the side, but about midway between. The whole creature was seemingly made of silver metal that gave off an eerie light in the darkness, like the light from the radium dial on a watch. Confronted with this weird entity, 
They went for their guns. Lucky grabbed the 20 gauge and Billy Ray got the 22. The creature was approaching with its hands raised, but when they got within 20 feet of the back door, they both fired at it. They said it flipped and then scurried away into the darkness. The men went to the living room to join the women and saw a creature in the window. They fired through a screen at it. This point gets a little confusing. By now, J.C. Sutton is also armed, apparently with the 20-gauge shotgun, which I assume means that Lucky's now switched to the 12-gauge. J.C. fires through the screen, no more than two feet from the window at the thing outside. Billy Ray also fires with the 22. Let's return to Davis to describe what happens next. The men decided to go outdoors and see whether they had actually hit the creature. As they started out the front door, there occurred one of the most talked about and terrifying incidents of the story. Taylor went through the doorway first. As he stood under the small overhanging roof, about to step down into the yard, those behind him in the hall saw a claw-like hand reach down and touch his hair. They screamed at him, and Aline Sutton seized him to pull him back into the house. Lucky, close behind Taylor, pushed past him into the yard, turned the 12-gauge shotgun up towards the creature on the overhang, fired, and knocked it over the roof. There's one up in the tree, too, Billy Ray said. It was on the limb of the maple tree to the right as you leave the house. Both Lucky and Taylor shot at that one, knocking him off the limb. He floated to the ground, they shot at him again, and he too scurried off into the weeds. Almost at the same time, around the northwest corner of the house, right in front of Lucky, came another one, or the same one that had been knocked off the ridgepole. Lucky shoots at that one at close range with a 12-gauge, and it just flips and scurries away again. Apparently befuddled by the ineffectiveness of the weapons, the men retreated to the house to decide the next course of action. The matriarch of the house, Mrs. Langford, points out that the creatures, whatever they are, haven't harmed anyone. All of this first wave activity is more than a little bit confusing. Davis describes what happens next. Understandably, the sequence of events was and remains confused. No one was keeping a log. Mrs. Langford, for example, when interviewed by Mr. Andre in 1959, thought the incident of Taylor's hair being touched occurred around 10.30 p.m. She said that at first she did not pay attention to the boys, thinking they were only joking and shooting for the fun of it. She and the other women were busy with the supper dishes and putting the children to bed. We thought the boys were only kidding, although they were coming into the house and telling about seeing and shooting at the things. I did not take them seriously until about 10 o'clock when Aileen came in terrified, white, nervous, shaking, saying that she had seen one of the little men. She was terribly upset, and her nervousness continued for several days. I suggested to the boys that we turn the lights out, which we did. I decided then to see just what it was they were seeing. I went out into the hallway and crouched down next to Billy and asked him, Now just what have you been seeing? He replied, Wait, and you'll see. We remained crouched down about three feet from the screen door, the front door, for about twenty minutes when I saw one approaching the door. Billy and I remained crouching until it came right up to the screen. It looked like a five-gallon gasoline can with a head on top and small legs. It was shimmering bright metal like on my refrigerator. I tried to get up from my crouched position to move back further from the door. I did not make it, as I am heavy and my legs have become stiff from remaining in a crouched position a long time. And being in the dark, I lost my balance and fell flat on the floor, making a thud-like noise and letting out a shriek. At the same time, the thing jumped back into the yard and Billy shot at it right through the screen. That would be Billy Ray Taylor who was using the twenty-two, which is a very small caliber rifle. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. By 11 p.m., the family had enough, and they piled into two vehicles and headed at high speed for the Hopkinsville Police Department. They arrived at the station and explained their situation. Whether or not the police literally believed every word being told to them by the family members, they could tell that the fear these people had was sincere. The Suttons would not return home until the police had given the all clear. For a few hours, the farm swarmed with policemen, a few interested onlookers, some military police that were on duty that night in Hopkinsville, a newspaper photographer, sheriff department officials, and eventually the Suttons. The police didn't find any silvery spaceman, or any feathers, nor blood, nor liquor bottles. They did find a few spent shells, a few beer cans, and they spent some time calming the family down to the point that when they left, everyone tried to get some sleep. This was about 2 a.m. Around 2.30 a.m., the matriarch, Mrs. Lankford, looked up and saw one of the glowing figures in the window. She alerted Lucky, and after some protestation from her, he fired at it through the window. This apparently had no effect. The creatures continued to be intermittently spotted until about 4.45 a.m. that morning. This was the last time they were seen on the farm, but the family story was about to blow up. The next day, Despite being sleep-deprived, Lucky Sutton and Billy Ray drove 80 miles away on some errand or another that had to do with delivering a truck or possibly delivering furniture. It's a little bit unclear. But the rest of the family started having to deal with the curious. In the days that followed, newspaper and radio coverage told of the war with the little green men on the Kentucky farm. Curious onlookers just descended on the land, looking for monsters, looking for evidence, looking to make fun of people, looking for who knows what, but they would not go away. By the time the crowds finally dispersed, the Sutton family had not made any money, they were ridiculed, and they generally seemed to have been ill-treated by the community, at least as far as the court of public opinion goes, and in the respect of privacy one might be due when having suffered some kind of traumatic experience. When Isabel Davis came to Hopkinsville to research the report that became Close Encounter at Kelly, she was hoping to talk to the original witnesses. What she found was that the family had grown quite sullen and reticent to talk about the case. This seems unremarkable given the treatment they had had at the hands of their own community. Davis was able to talk to Mrs. Langford, but also to many people who were involved in the investigation, including reporters, a deputy sheriff, the police chief, state troopers, relatives of the family who knew many details, and WHOP radio engineer Bud Ledwith, who had conducted interviews and made drawings of what the witnesses described shortly after the events took place. Ledwith's sketches are the iconic images which most people recognize as the true shape of these goblins. This show is monster talk, and I'd be lying if I didn't admit that I'm mostly interested in the goblins in this story, more so than any other mysterious phenomena that kicked off events, but we need to talk about that. 
The story all starts when Billy Ray Taylor comes into the Sutton house claiming he had seen a spaceship land in the gully out back. Taylor, as I mentioned, at least in the Davis report, comes across as an unreliable witness. That being said, there were meteors seen that night. The Kappa Cygnids meteor shower had just peaked a few days before. Whether these meteors were from that shower, I don't know, but other witnesses did see them. But if those other witnesses saw streaks of light, why did Billy Ray Taylor claim he saw a craft shooting rainbow exhaust? I've linked to Close Encounter at Kelly in our show notes, and you can read through it yourself if you're curious. It's a very interesting and detailed account. One thing that will stick out through the whole thing is that it's written in the time when the belief in saucers was very much a popular item. I'd suggest you check out our coverage of the Long John Nebel radio show back on episode 109. This was a time when talk of saucers filled the late night airways of New York, and Davis and Blecker were keenly interested in the topic. While the report does eventually get down to the creatures and experiences of the Suttons, it does so well placed in the context that this was a time when the country was experiencing a very large interest in saucers and their occupants. I actually just changed the word to occupants instead of aliens because whether these saucers came out of outer space or inner space or other space was and still is a big debate among interested parties. We'll talk about that in our subsequent episode. I wish Karen was here with me to discuss this because it's definitely more fun to review these topics as a conversation. This is a bit of a side here, but I'm going to go ahead and mention it and then get back to these pesky goblins. In order to prepare a monster talk, and honestly, and just in keeping with a lifelong passion for the weird, the bizarre, and the unusual, I listen to and consume a lot of paranormal literature and media. One show I enjoy a lot is the podcast Astonishing Legends, which is hosted by Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. They recently did a three-part coverage of the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins, and part of why our coverage of this case will likely be three episodes as well is because of some things that got covered in their conclusion. We'll get to that. And I'm in discussion with Scott and Forrest to try and have them on to talk about it, and I believe we'll manage that pretty soon as well. It turned into a very interesting lesson for me as a science advocate and a proponent of critical thinking. I believe a positive outcome has happened and that further positive outcomes will happen as a result of these conversations. I'm also planning to have the skeptic most noted for working on this case on to talk about his findings. So you can expect to hear from Joe Nickel on this as well. I mention this because I really want to get back to my planned agenda, which is witches and vampires and the history of magic. But for now, let's get back to goblins. Let's talk about these Kentucky goblins. You've got men and women and children in a dimly lit tin roof farmhouse looking out a screen window and a screen door. The men also see the thing from outside the house, from their barely lit exterior out into the darkness of the Kentucky night. And they shoot at it from both inside and outside the house. Shortly after the events, the witnesses help a sketch artist draw what they saw. I'll put that image in the show notes, but the drawings of a round-headed, big-eyed, pointy-eared, talon-handed creature. It was described in several ways, and actually multiple witnesses gave their information to the sketch artist, and he produced multiple drawings, but they're all very closely aligned, except for Billy Ray, who wanted to add antenna and a nose on his. They are described as being three and a half feet tall with an oversized head that was almost perfectly round, as we mentioned, and arms that extended almost to the ground, and huge hands with talons at the ends. Their feet are rarely mentioned. And I thought this detail at the end, the whole creature was seemingly made of silver metal that gave off eerie light in the darkness, like the light from a radium dial of a watch. If that was the description that was given to reporters, it may be the source of the little green men take on the creature. Radium does glow green on watch hands. But it's important to note that the phrase little green men 
was already in general use in the public and had been for a long time. It's possible that reporters just inserted that as sort of a, a, a handle for talking about the mysterious creatures. Around the turn of the century, the phrase appears in children's stories to refer to sprites or other mysterious humanoids of fairylands, and it's also associated with saucers before the Kelly case. Regardless, none of the original witnesses ever called them little green men, or even described them as green, as far as I can tell. They were described as floating or gliding, one perched on the short shed roof over the back door, one floated into a tree. I believe at one point one glides and perches on a fence uh, on being shot, the creatures flip over and then ran or glide away. The eyes are described as large and without pupils. It was theorized in the Davis report that they were avoiding light. Davis mentions that perhaps without pupils, they can't handle bright light. And I believe it was Mrs. Langford who said that she thought they might have been avoiding the lights around the house. They walked with their hands up in the don't shoot position, which could be pointed out was not effective if that was their goal. Um, their legs were described as spindly as broom handles. They were described as inflexible and unbending like stilts. The creatures were described as glowing, but when the light was turned on them, there were flashlights being used that night by the Suttons, the glow would disappear and the creatures appeared metallic. When they crawled on the tin roof, they scraped the metal with their claws. They weren't described as hostile. Mrs. Lankford said they never tried to harm anyone, but they were shot at. I like this description. She said, it looked like a five-gallon gas can with a head on top and small legs. It was shimmering bright metal like on my refrigerator. I, that is such an interesting visual. It was also described as looking like a metal wash tub. And some newspaper stories even refer to the creatures as the tub men. Whatever it was they saw that night, the police and other investigators could find no physical evidence that night or the next day. But even the people who were skeptical of the metallic goblins agreed that the Suttons couldn't be faking their terror on that hot August night. So what did they see that night in Kentucky? Did they see anything at all? We'll have to continue our discussion of this case in part two of our coverage of American Goblins. I don't want to leave you with a total cliffhanger, but I also don't plan for you to have to wait very long for part two of this story. We'll be back very soon with a look at how skeptics, believers, and debunkers view this case. I believe you'll find it very interesting. Also, I'm going to be conducting a little experiment this weekend to try and duplicate one of the bits of physical evidence from the story. If anything useful comes from that, I'll share it in the next episode as well. And hopefully there'll be some photos or video to post on the Monster Talk Facebook page. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and this was part one of our multi-part coverage of the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblin Attack of 1955. Whether the goblins attacked, or were attacked, or were even goblins, will be covered more in the next installment of this series. I hope you'll return for that. We also have some fun episodes planned about witches and other creepy Halloween-themed critters coming soon. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this episode are mine. Just mine. They don't necessarily reflect the opinion of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society, but if you'd like to find out their official opinions, you can check out their magazine at your local newsstand. Do, do people actually still have newsstands? I honestly don't know. I see them in movies. I don't know. Anyway, due to some recent events, I'm not going to run the full ad for the October convention for the Center for Skeptical Inquiry, but that event is still happening at the end of October, and you can learn more about it at csiconference.org. 
It looks like a lot of fun. And if you do happen to go, please tell Joe Nickel hello. He will appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Good Lord, the stack of books I have to read, but I am so thankful for all your support. You listeners are awesome. I know I'm a skeptic, but I just want to say it anyway as a skeptic. I don't believe in much, but I believe in you. Thanks for being there for me and Karen. We really appreciate it. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skepti, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. In a little kitchen with a little refrigerator. Good Lord, listen to me. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.